Reach Young Adult Ministry Sermons online from Tuesday, May 25th, 2021 by Taylor Gabbert, entitled Wisdom, from the series In Practical Faith, over James 3, 1 through 4, 3. Alright, so first we'll, we'll do a little review, catch up on this uh, nifty little diagram we got back here. Um, there's you. You've fallen short of the grace of God, right? You're alone, you're separated, and there's God. Now there's two things in this circle. We need grace to get grace, right? So God has to give us grace to respond, and we are saved by grace through faith, right? That process is justification. That's this, this entire area right here. That is what brings you back into relationship with God. This call on and repent, believe and confess, and faith and abide, that's all different uh, kind of angles or aspects of one thing, one thing that's happening as you become justified, right? And that is your invisible relationship with God, all right? Once you have that invisible relationship with God, God promises that you will be made perfect and made righteous, that you will be in heaven with him someday, right? And in the meantime, while you're waiting on that, you begin to have godly responses and you begin to do works, right? And this is the tangible expression of your invisible relationship with God, right? And then you have the alternate route. You can do things your way and the world's way and you can be in separation from God. Now, ultimately, that, how I explained it, is about the direction that Paul explains this same concept. But as we've been working through James, we've seen that James is saying the same thing, but he's going backwards. He's starting here, and he's saying, if you don't have godly responses, and you're not doing the work of God, what makes you think that you believe in who God is? What makes you think that you have this invisible relationship if, you're, if there's no evidence in your life? Well, tonight, James is going to transition, uh, and we're going to talk about the tongue. Now, why are we going to talk about the tongue? The tongue is the easiest indicator. It's easy to use your tongue. Right? Some of you actually don't have the means to sin in ways that you might want to, but you can say just about anything. Now, the interesting thing is that so far, James has kind of had this theme running where he said um he said just because you say you believe doesn't mean you actually do right because your actions don't match and then on the other hand now we're going to go into now what you say is evidence of what's inside well how do these how do these fit together james is not trying to say um in the first portion he's not trying to say that the physical words coming out of your mouth are what determines whether or not you're saved. I think we, we do have this. We have this kind of this sinner's prayer, right? If I pray these certain words, then I become a Christian. And really, that's exactly what James is saying is not the case. What he's saying is, in the first portion, he's saying, if what you say on Sunday doesn't match who you are Monday through Saturday, you have deceived yourself. Okay, that's, that's James has been talking about that Sunday phrase. Well, I believe in God. Of course I do, right? Now, James is going to talk about the Monday through Saturday. 
Now James is coming at it from this side, and he's saying, if everything you say is of the world, then why would you assume that you have some kind of relationship with God? The other thing we're going to see tonight is this is going to be one of the most apparent parts in the book uh, that shows James to be sort of a a wisdom literature. So in the Old Testament, there's a genre of wisdom literature. And in the New Testament, um, that's not really a genre, but James is going to be the author who writes the most like that. And tonight, he's going to delve into what is wisdom, what's true wisdom, what does it look like, and you're going to see him kind of lay out wisdom in a way that the Old Testament does quite often. So if you go with me to chapter uh, 3, verse 1, It starts with, Do not become teachers in large numbers, my brothers, since you know that we who are teachers will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to rein in the whole body as well. Okay. Why does he start with teachers? Well, the reason he starts with teachers is because when teachers misuse their tongue, it has the most effect on their flock, right? If you misuse your tongue, you might hurt a couple of people. But what do we see in, say, like the prosperity gospel? We see people misusing their tongue and leading thousands of people astray. So James is going to start this conversation with the tongue by saying, hey, uh, if you want to become a teacher, understand that that comes with added weight and added responsibility. Now, some of you in this room are called to teach. That's the case. Some of you are called to teach. However, some of you need to examine if that's a call in your life or you just want a platform. And here's the thing. Here's why James puts this in this way. We all stumble, right? We all stumble. So if you jump up into a teaching platform knowing that you stumble, you are volunteering to be held to that stricter and weightier responsibility, that that new standard. So what James is saying is, don't jump up here because it looks all nice and shiny and you think, oh, I want to have that platform because the reality is the weight on your shoulders as a teacher is heavier, it's stricter. So when you decide, I have a calling to be a teacher, it better be a calling. Now, what does it mean to be perfect? He says perfect, and we've, we've examined this in a few of the prior uh, chapters. What he's saying is mature, right? He's saying somebody who has learned, um, that has learned to uh, handle things correctly in their spiritual life. Now, why, does, why is someone who um, can reign in the tongue able to reign in their whole body? Well, let's think about it like this. Sometimes when you sin in your life, I would actually say most of the time when you sin in your life, there's this progression where you're like, I shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. I'm still going to do this, right? But how often do you speak before you can even think, right? That jumps out there. Somebody says something to you, you say something back, and you're like, oh, that one got away. That is why he's saying if you can manage this, if you can keep that from running away, then Stopping yourself from taking those intentional steps towards physical sin should be an easier process because you've matured in that self-control. Let's look in verse 3. 
Now, if we put bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their whole body as well. Look at the ships too. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are nevertheless directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot determines. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Okay, I kind of mentioned this last week, but let's talk about this idea of uh, bridling the mouth or, or uh, putting a bit in the horse's mouth. We're talking about reining something in, not muzzling it. Let me ask you this question. Does, does not talking at all make you righteous? That's been thought. We, there are people in church history who have taken vows of silence, right? So the question is, what, what does James say earlier? When he says, what is true religion? Well, he starts with, with one thing. We'll come back to that. The first thing he says is, or I'm sorry, the second thing he says is, remain unstained by the world. So that's to not do bad things. Okay, so if you stayed completely silent, you could probably accomplish that. What's the first thing he says? The first thing he says is to uh, go to orphans and widows in their distress, right? That's the do good things part, right? Now, the point is that what comes out of your mouth is an overflow of the abundance of your heart. So just because you have silenced your mouth and you don't have bad things flowing forth, you also don't have good things flowing forth, right? So now we're back to this. You may have this relationship, but if we can't see it, or, or I'm sorry, if you can't see it, how do you know you have it? If you have uh, figured out a way to just not say bad things, that doesn't mean that inside your heart and deep down is an abundance of what God has that's going to then flow forth in goodness. So it's about control, right? We're not talking about uh, we're not talking about muzzling. We're talking about directing. So if the horse and the ship are the body, and the bit and the rudder are the tongue, then who is the rider and the pilot? It's not you. Okay? You are the horse or the ship. Here's the reality. If the Holy Spirit isn't the rider or the pilot in your life, there isn't one. Okay? So let's talk about it like this. I love this ship analogy. He says, driven, tossed by the wind, right? He's talking about life. All of these influences that are just smashing against you and just making things crazy and chaotic and seem threatening and dangerous. Now imagine that there's no ship's captain. That ship sinks. It can't survive. It definitely doesn't know where it's going. You have to have a skilled rider. You have to have a skilled captain to direct, to direct the tongue. If you tame the tongue, you tame the body. I found a poem this week. I want to read this to you real fast. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can also hurt me. Stones and sticks break only skin, while words are ghosts that haunt me. Slant and curved, the word swords fall. It pierces and sticks inside me. Bats and bricks may ache through bones, but words can mortify me. Pain from words has left its scar 
on mind and here that's tender. Cuts and bruises have not healed. It's words that I remember. We've all heard the original of this, right? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Who knows that's a lie? (laughs) The reality is we know that words do real damage. That words inflict real pain. Here's a question. Is it other people's words? (laughs) Are other people's words the only words that hurt us? No. Let me ask you this question. How many of you are the source of some of the worst words in your own life? Why do we tell you to memorize scripture in the church? Because the only way to fight those lies that the enemy is perpetuating in your head and getting to come out of your mouth directed at you is by writing on your heart truth If you have access to this book, which you live in America, so you absolutely do, you have access to truth. So if you are in your life, in the shadows, the person telling yourself that you're worthless or that you're stupid, you are in that moment the tool of your own enemy. You're letting him lie to you through your own tongue, right? So we know that words from other people hurt, but we don't always believe those. We almost always believe our own words to ourselves. Let's look in the rest of uh, verse five. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body's parts as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Okay. First of all, how does a fire spread or start? Sometimes a small spark, right? It's really tiny. A spark by itself is not even that threatening, right? If you have a lighter and you flick that lighter on, that probably doesn't terrify you. Right? But if I held that lighter, that very small flame, to this curtain, we'd all have to leave this room. Right? Because in a matter of minutes, that's going to be out of control. Let's talk about this for a second. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. I'm going to read you guys a passage out of Mark. This is Mark chapter 7, verse 20. And he was saying, that which comes out of the person, that is what defiles the person. For from within, out of the hearts of people, come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual morality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The world of unrighteousness is that list that list of things that defile you. The tongue is the spark that starts that fire. The tongue is the tiny flame that gives way to this world of all these evil things. It's set among your parts defiling you. 
Anybody know uh, what would happen if, if you stayed in this room and we started a fire on this curtain? You would die of smoke inhalation before you got burned. Because the smoke from that fire would fill every corner of this room and it would make it unlivable. What James is saying is that when you spark that fire and it spreads, you choke out not just yourself, you choke out everybody that's around you. Right? Because your sin, that small fire that you started, that becomes a raging fire, it then begins to have consequences that affect those around us. Now, he says in here, he, at the end of, of, of verse 6, he says, and it is set on fire by hell. Now, the interesting thing about the word hell here is that um, he actually uses the word, um, hold on, he actually uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna literally means Valley of Hinnom. All right, so James right now is not using the same word for hell that's used in, in most of the New Testament, but he's making a reference that his Jewish audience would have understood. So the Valley of Hinnom was a gorge southwest of Jerusalem, and in that gorge, the Canaanites used to conduct child sacrifice. And after the Canaanites had been moved out of the land, some of the first kings of Israel that were wicked also conducted human sacrifice there. King uh, Josiah is the one that makes it illegal. And then after that, it basically becomes a garbage dump. And it's a garbage dump where they wouldn't just dump garbage, but they would dump the bodies of criminals. And in this gorge, they had a fire that was kept going all the time to burn the garbage. So this garbage dump is this disgusting place of maggots and flame. That's what he's referencing here. So he's saying that when your tongue sets on fire the course of your life, when you walk around shooting sparks, flying off before you think, when you walk around choking out other people with smoke, choking out yourself with your own flames, what he's saying is your tongue becomes this hellish garbage dump of flame and maggots. It is a tool of the enemy. You have nothing edifying to say. Okay, so let's go back to the point of James. Does that sound like this? If you're walking around and that's your tongue, what makes you think that you have this? James is constantly concerned with how we are living our life. Verse 7. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one among mankind can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people, who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. All right. In, in verse 7, he's talking about nature being subjugated to humans. Here's the, the reality. Um, we, ha- we, we dominate this globe, right? We've tamed every animal or learned how to hunt every animal. We, we can handle nature, right? Now, um, 
whether or not we do that in a good way is, is a different story. The point is that we have the capacity to tame nature. And yet, the wild world of nature that we can tame and no one can control their own tongue. Keep in mind, you're not the rider that's directing your tongue. You're not the pilot or the ship's captain that's steering the, the, the rudder, right? You can't do it. You can't tame your own tongue. He's saying you can do all these things. We've, as, as a human race, we've tamed nature. And yet, without God, you can't tame your tongue. You're unable to direct it. And then he says it's a deadly poison. Well, who's it poisoning? It's poisoning you. Your tongue is in your mouth. You're the one swallowing that poison. If you're going around lashing out at people, spreading hate, slander, and gossip, you're the one drinking the poison that is slowly killing you. And you may hurt other people in the process. As a matter of fact, you will. But that deadly poison, it's going to get you first. In verse 9 and 10, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. What does this sound like? Last week we talked about the prophet Amos. And Amos' message was, you like to go to church. You like to keep the ceremony. You like to, to do all the, the proper things but you're malicious towards people. You, you uh, tread on the needy and the weak. And God's not going to ignore that your words don't match your actions. What he's saying is, you go to church on Sunday and you proclaim a lot of this, and the rest of the week, this is what's coming out of your mouth. He, he's talking as well about the royal law. So he says this phrase about uh, made in God's likeness. Here's the reality. Human beings have inherent value for this reason. Every single one of us was made in the image of God. So if you're focused on any other part of a person than that, you're focused on the temporary. You're missing it. And what he's saying here is that you say that you love God and yet you curse the very image of him that is in every man when you treat people poorly. How can you possibly love God and hate his likeness? How can you possibly love God and not love others? That's the royal law, right? We talked about this. Um, the royal law is wrapped up in love your, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor before yourself. It is this uh, simple statement, seeing others the way God sees them. What is loving God? Believing what he says, believing what he sees, loving the things he loves. It is literally impossible for you to, to love God and hate people. You can't do it. In verse 11, he says, Does a spring send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives, or a vine bear figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. All right, this is on brand for James the entire book so far. 
He's saying the same thing. He's, he's driving this point home. You have to take a look at the fruit you're producing and see where it's coming from. All right? Can, is there worldly fruit? Yes, there is. So if you are of God, you can't produce this fruit. And if you're of the world, you can't produce this fruit. That's what he's saying here. He's saying these kinds of trees can't produce other than the kind of fruit that they're supposed to produce. Now, again, James is not trying to say here um, that, you will, that you should never mess up. And if you ever mess up, well, that's it, you, you know, you, you've done it now. That's not his point. His point is, how are you living your life, right? There's a difference between I sin because I'm still in my fleshly body. Look at this. This is the promise that someday I'll be perfect. I'm not there yet, okay? I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to mess up. But if the evidences of my life aren't even going this direction, I'm probably missing something. Okay, listen. We're going to talk about social media for a second. I think that uh, we play this mental game with ourselves sometimes where social media, like, it gets like, it gets like an excuse and just gets laid off to the side. Is it any less your tongue because you typed it? It's absolutely not. And we know that, and the world loves that, by the way. The world loves to be hateful to each other on the internet because it's not the same as when you're looking somebody in the face and you have to say it with your mouth right but the reality is it's no less your tongue so let's let's talk about social media for a second are there good uses for social media debatable <laughs> it's debatable at best but here's here's the thing if i start talking about social media right now and you have walked in this room to, and, and you prepared your heart. And you said, Lord, I want to hear what you have for me today. And this, this entire next piece is just a big miss. Okay, don't overthink it. it. It is possible to use social media in a way that glorifies God. And if you're doing that, then I'm not here to tell you, hey, all social media is a sin. And if you have it at all, you're wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But if you feel that, you know, that like poke on the forehead that God does where he says, hey, are you listening? Are you listening? Are you listening? then you might want to tune in and think about your social media for a second. So let's, let's go back to this concept. Remain unstained by the world. That's the second thing, right? What are things that we do on social media that stain us? How about idol worship? I know that one of the things that uh, I had a problem with on social media was that, of course, I followed all of my favorite hobbies, and then that's pretty much all I thought about, all I cared about, all I worried about. I had uh, things in my life that became gods before God because I was worshiping them with my social media. What about self-worship? What about exalting me? Look, I'll, I'll tell you right now, that is the number one reason I don't have social media. Because my Instagram was my shrine to me. It was, how do I make myself look cooler? And when I figured that out, when God put that in front of my face, it was like, okay, this has to go. How about it's just one giant focus on the scene? It's not focusing on the unseen. It's all the scene. It's all the temporary. 
Everything about social media is that. It's also not being a jerk about Christianity, right? If you are going on social media to elicit negative responses from, from non-Christians and then going, <laughs> another crown in my, or another jewel in my crown, thank you very much, you are wrong, flat out, all right? But here's the question. We're supposed to do good too, right? When was the last time you used your social media to worship God? When was the last time you used your social media to speak truth into other people's lives or love others? Let me ask you this question. Are you afraid to post what you really think on social media? Again, I'm not talking about going out to elicit negative responses from people. right? We're, we're told that we're blessed for our persecution, but that doesn't, it doesn't work that way when you just go hunt people to get angry at you. right? But if you are afraid of being persecuted on your social media for saying what you believe, you are focused on the temporary and you're not focused on what God says is the end result. This is the eternal. This is the permanent. We know that this is how it all comes crashing down. So if the end is that, why are you focused on the temporary? Again, I'm not telling you to, that you have to delete your social media. What I am telling you is that you need to take a good, hard look at how you're using your social media. Are you using it in a fruitful way and to, to speak life and worship God? Or are you using it to worship pretty much anything else, you included? Now, James has this, uh, this kind of theme or this uh, back and forth that he goes with in, in these uh, chapters. He kind of does like uh, specific and broad and broad and specific, and he jumps back and forth. And so we've been talking specific. He's been talking about the tongue. And now he's going to go broad. Now we're going to talk big picture, wisdom. What, is, what does it mean to be wise? All right, so look in verse 13. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Okay. First of all, this phrase wise in understanding at the beginning of that, this has uh, two meanings. Um, one, one is that he is, it's kind of a term that would have readdressed the teacher theme that he started with. So he's kind of saying, okay, you people who want to be teachers, you who are wise in understanding and want to teach, right? And then it's, it's broader than that because he's still going back to this idea of wisdom in a term of um, godly perspective, right? This idea that uh, I can handle the world around me in a wise manner if I can see everything happening to me the way God sees it, right? So if I am wise in understanding, then I will approach situations correctly. And, he, and then he says, um, then he says, let him show by his good behavior and his deeds. Show actions. What is gentleness of wisdom? 
gentleness of wisdom is power under control. Let's think about it like this. When you see somebody bully someone else, do you think, that bully's pretty powerful? No. You think he's pathetic and he's weak. Let's talk about Jesus for a second. Jesus had the most power of anyone. He was God. But did he just use it for his own uh, benefit constantly? No, he had it under control. He had his power restrained. He submitted himself willingly to be crucified. That is gentleness of wisdom. That is power under control. Not, not this worldly power that just dominates everything weaker than it. Okay, then he talks about earthly wisdom. So, jealousy and selfish ambition. This is essentially the rat race mentality. I'm number one. I'm going to take care of me and get mine. I want what he has. I want what he has. I want to have more than everybody, and I'm going to accomplish it. That's what the world tells us to do. And devoid of any understanding of God, it does seem to make sense. When you look at worldly wisdom and you don't, um, you don't see God in anything, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you take care of you? He says it's earthly. When he says it's earthly, he says it's of the world. It's focused on the world. It's focused on temporary, focused on seeing. When he says it's natural, he's saying it's of the flesh. It's focused on me, right? So I'm focused on the world. I'm focused on myself. And then he says it's demonic. It's of the devil. That means it's actively rejecting the way of God. So I'm focused on what I can see. I'm focused on myself. And I'm, and I'm throwing out everything that God says. That's what he's saying this earthly wisdom consists of. And then he's going to contrast that, starting in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy, and the fruit of, right, uh, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, this, he, he gives us a list here. He's talking about real wisdom, right? This is the contrast with this earthly wisdom. First, he says it's pure. That's to be, it's not a, that's not a sexual purity. That's a, a purity in motive. To be good or genuine in your motive. Then he says, it's peace-loving. So this is a promoting of goodness. This isn't passive. So let's go back to this conversation on social media. Don't never post anything good or truth and then say, well, I just, I don't want to start a fight. I'm peace-loving. No, that's not it. Peace-loving is to promote what's good, not to be passive. Gentle. This is a sweetness. This is essentially the golden rule. This is the part of wisdom that says, I'm going to treat people with a gentle sweetness the way that I want them to treat me. Reasonable. Okay, I listened to a guy this week who talked about this, this one. 
And I think this has a really interesting explanation. He, it's described as being willing to yield. It's not being stubborn, obstinate, or unbending. It's not dogmatic or prideful. It's the wisdom to know when to yield. So sometimes in our lives, wisdom is, is understanding when I should yield. That's what this reasonable one it means. Full of mercy. All right. In chapter 2, verse 13, James said, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then in this list of wisdom, he says, full of mercy. I call this the amended golden rule, or the golden rule 2.0. It goes kind of like this. Treat others the way you want God to treat you. If you want, if you expect some, some kind of forgiveness and mercy from God, and yet you walk around brutalizing people he loves, because he loves all of us, what makes you think you're going to get that mercy and that forgiveness? Here's the thing. We all know this parable of the, of the man who's forgiven the large debt and then turns around and throws the person who owed him very little in jail, right? And then when the, when the master finds out, he throws that man in jail. That's the picture. It's this idea that you can't just walk around taking advantage of God's grace and never giving it to anybody. The reality is, if you're never giving anybody God's grace, you probably never got God's grace. Then he says, good fruits. Okay, this is an a important little spot in this in this wisdom conversation. This is the practical part. The good fruits is the part that keeps you from taking wisdom and making it this purely philosophical bend. Like I just sit back and I think wise thoughts all the time. The good fruits are, how is your wisdom applied? How are you living this wisdom? Right? It's not just this neat mind concept, a a stimulating little uh, brain game you play. It is a real lived out kind of wisdom. And then he says free of hypocrisy. Remove the log from your eye, the beam from your eye, before you try to remove the speck from somebody else's. This is a this free from hypocrisy is a, a little bit in the bend of humility. Wisdom is, is saying, before I jump ahead of myself to correct all of the wrongdoings in other people's lives, I need to, to do a quick double check and say, okay, where am I messed up? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is where it says the high priest uh, is able to, to deal with others gently because he too is clothed in weakness. If you don't think you're clothed in weakness, you're not practicing this kind of wisdom. And then verse 18, and the fruit of of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Who's it sown by? The peacemakers. Those who are righteous and produce fruit. James keeps coming back 
to this. This whole time, right? When we look at Paul, Paul was being just hounded by these guys called the Judaizers, right? And so the Judaizers are following Paul around, telling everybody, uh, if you don't keep the whole law uh, in, in, in addition to believing in Christ, you're not going to heaven. And so Paul spends most of his ministry over here saying, this is your relationship with God, and it's completely dependent on God. And that's incredibly true. It's also really good news. Because if any part of my relationship with God is dependent on me, I am in trouble. Right? That's this. And then James comes in on the backside and says, yes, however, what makes you think you have a relationship with God if you don't have fruit? He's going to beat us over the head with this point. This is the whole theme. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's active. That's an action. That's a reality lived out. Look in, look in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your own pleasure. Let's look at verse 1. What is the source of, the, of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not the pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? In Romans chapter 7, Paul goes through this incredibly agonizing monologue about what's going on inside of himself. He describes these two parts of him that are waging war against each other. And he says, my flesh causes me to do what I don't want to do, and my spirit wants to do what I can't do. James is saying the same thing. He, but, but James is saying it from the other side. He's saying, your lusts are the reason that you have trouble producing this fruit. He's, he's encouraging you to get rid of this part that's still dragging you down. This part, again, remember, we're not here yet. You still have this whole other side of you hanging on that's going to keep dragging you down and causing you to make mistakes. But he's saying you don't get to just uh, be okay with that. You don't get to just go, well, you know, someday it'll be fine. Right? Look in, look in verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Okay, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. And then goes on to explain that if you've hated your brother, you're guilty. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And then he explains that if you've looked at someone lustfully, you're guilty, right? So Jesus is going to say, that Jesus is going to say that what's inside of you shows you to be guilty or not 
And James is going to say that what's outside of you is the result of what's inside of you. Again, James is saying the same thing as Jesus. He's talking from the opposite perspective of the same exact point. And then we have this really confusing uh, kind of sidebar where we talk about prayer. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your own pleasures. Listen, do you want to know how to get everything you ever pray for? Match your heart to God's. Here's the reality. If you love God, if you abide in God, you will want what God wants when God wants it. And then when you ask God for something in prayer that matches his exact heart, you will see your prayers answered. But when you ask God with your own motives for your own pleasures, that's why you walk around with a lot of unanswered prayers. When, when, we, say, uh, when we say pray for something in God's name, uh, the way we treat that in English is like this uh, tack on phrase at the end of a prayer that makes it come true. In, in Jesus' name we pray. And now I'm going to get what I, what I asked for. That is not what that means. What that means is when you pray for something that's inside of God's will, when you pray for something that's in God's heart, that he wants, then you get it. Listen, the point of this portion, the point of what he's ending here with at the beginning of chapter 4, the point of of chapter 3 is the same in that James is still saying, whatever's inside of you pours forth, and is evidenced by who you are in a tangible way. Next week, we're going to be at the the race commemoration. But in two weeks, we're going to go over what is actually my favorite uh, chapter in James. James, um, James is going to give us the key to life. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That's the point. So be here in two weeks and let's go over what James says about humility. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Yeah, watch over Bring your glory down